DVR and I drafted like it was 1999, and our drafts did go astray. So what are our lessons learned? Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. <laughs> I have That's not it. had the three go-throughs uh, yet. It worked great in a fantasy. Three. I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Friday, May 15th. I'm Al Melkier, and I am here with Derek Van Riper and DVR. I think this, yeah, this is our first time catching up with each other since we did a 1999 retro draft earlier this week. And I, I feel like that intro was very unfair to you. Um, you were very close to being on, as we say, the left side of the standings column. Uh, but I know you were you were complaining a little bit on Twitter about... Uh, how things worked out for you. And I certainly have a lot to complain about because uh, I finished 11th out of 12th, but uh, <laughs> I figured we take the opportunity to talk about maybe what one can learn from doing a retro draft and maybe what we specifically learned from this particular retro draft. Uh, let's, let's start with, um, and I'll have your tweet in front of me, but uh, so you know, correct me if I'm paraphrasing wrong, but uh, you'd said something about, you know, like nice job by the guy who compiled way too many home runs and uh, you know didn't get enough RBIs and runs. Um, so, was that to you what was you know maybe the the worst part of uh, this retro draft for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing you don't want to do if you end up playing a retro league and you draft stats that have already happened, you don't want to win any category by such a huge margin that you clearly drafted too many players who do that specific thing because it means you left points on the table. Winning home runs by 30, even in a current league, doesn't help you. And you could trade your way out of it and you can get you can do different things to change your course in season for a draft that's happening right now. But it really shouldn't happen when you know what stats you're drafting. And what I'm trying to figure out is if in the way I prepared, if I didn't set up my values for the strategy I was going to use, I don't think I don't think it made sense to punt batting average without building custom values that accounted for me doing that. So I think that's part of the reason why I didn't target enough runs and RBIs. I think I was looking at stats from 1999. I saw lots of players with totals, 80-plus runs, 80-plus RBIs, some even in triple digits, guys you could get in the middle and late rounds of the draft. And I thought, okay, great. I'm going to make up the ground and runs and RBIs as I fill in my third base spot, my corner spot, my last outfield spot, my utility spot. Like that's my categorical weakness offensively. Great, I got it covered. And what I just didn't do well was realize that everybody else in the first couple of rounds was getting, you know, 130 or 140 RBIs from their first couple of picks and 110 or 120 runs from some of those early round picks. So I, I just didn't do a very good job of, of tracking the extremes, I guess, in those two categories early on. And it just cost me because I felt like I was going to make up the ground later and I never did. Yeah, well, and I, I definitely fell prey to that as well. And I think we'll get back to that in a moment. Now, I'm going to ask you sort of a nitpicky question, but it's something I, I, I'm curious about the answer. So you actually didn't pile up that much of a lead in home runs over the second place team. You uh, wound up with 380. Ron Chandler had 12 fewer than that. But then there was a big, big gap between Ron and the third place team. So, you know, when you say don't pile up a big lead, I mean, it isn't necessarily just that one standings point 
you're concerned about, you're saying, you know, look at the whole, look at the whole distribution. Do I read that correctly? Right. I mean, if I had switched places with Ron, even I still would have rather had four to six more points in the other two categories combined runs and RBIs. That was to me, that was attainable. And I left that on, on the board and that's really frustrating. I mean, I, I look at these drafts. They're kind of like if you and 11 of your friends were going to drive from one city to a city like an hour away to go to a baseball game, you'd probably all take the highway most of the way there. And then when you got to that last 10, 20, 30 minute stretch, wherever traffic picks up, you'd all have to decide, am I staying on the freeway like everybody else? Or am I going to get off at this exit and take the side streets and try to get to the stadium faster? And I think what I've learned is that you need to sort of predict what the room is going to try and do, which is difficult if you haven't played against that group of 12 people before, but you can kind of take a good guess based on the player pool and the stats from that specific season. So if you take the time and you prep for it and you see a board in which you think a bunch of the owners maybe are going to punt steals. Okay. Like use that, like consider the the possibility that if other people are going to punt steals, it's less lucrative for you to punt steals and adjust the strategy based off of that. Whereas if everybody tries to do the same strategy, it renders the strategy less effective when you're buying known quantities of stats. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, but I want to get back to what you were saying a moment ago uh, about calibrating for uh, the different you know levels in, in each category. And I think this is part of the reason why I, I finished so poorly was that I think I was looking at stats. I, I don't think I did a very good job in preparation in terms of having a reliable way to compare players against each other. And so I think I wound up doing a little too much of judging stats by 2020 brain or 2019 uh, fantasy brain. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, you see somebody with, uh, you know, 100 RBIs, 100 runs, and, and, you know, you think you're good to go. And then you realize there's somebody, you know, who maybe did 120 in each category who was still hanging out there. So uh, how did you, how did, how did you prepare for this? How did you, um, I know you'd said something about uh, a set, you know, developing uh, some sort of value for players. Did you do that, or did you have some sort of proxy for that? I started to do it manually myself. I was following an article that I found. I- I've never actually made my own dollar values formula because as long as I've played competitive fantasy baseball, I've had tools that would do that for me. So you know why take the time to do it yourself if you've got a tool that does it better than you think you can in the first place. Now, I like that this is testing me and pushing me to actually learn how the sausage is made, so to speak. And I think I made sausage, but I don't think I got it into the casing <laughs> to, to continue uh, using Boris type metaphors. Um, so I, I'm I'm halfway there. I tried to make my own valuation system. I didn't have good weights for positional scarcity, which is a huge mistake, especially in a year when uh, Ivan Rodriguez and Mike Piazza were probably top five and top 15 overall players, respectively, if not even better on Piazza. I mean, I think that was a mistake on my part, and I don't think I did a good job in pitching, balancing out the non-closer relievers. So I don't know if my saves formula was a little bit too strong or if my wins formula for relievers was a little bit too light something went wrong there as well so there's some troubleshooting to be done 
but my attempt was to take the stats and retroactively put dollar values on all the stat lines. And I think you also have to figure out where each player provides value from each category. Because as you get further along building your team, your needs might vary depending on your draft position and what the rest of the room is doing. And you want to make sure if you're looking at two $10 players that the $10 player you choose actually makes up most of that $10 value in the categories that will help you the most. Yeah, and I think that's why this is a useful exercise because uh, you've got two discrete tasks right there. And this is, even though you you know are going to find out the results almost instantly, uh, in part thanks to a, an ingenious spreadsheet that Todd Zola created for the events, um, but uh, you, you do have to practice uh, or, or figure out you know what's the best way to evaluate players to give them uh, some sort of numerical value or, or something that's going to allow you to to compare them and and rank order them, but also yeah to to learn how to prioritize uh, categories as you go through the process to, of of a draft or an auction. So uh, I think some of it for me too might have just been rustiness that you know I've been doing those things for the last couple of months. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of them and uh, hopefully hopefully improving my results uh, the the next time. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, we have been. As we've talked about frequently on this show, we have been doing a simulation in Out of the Park Baseball, uh, our athletic alternate universe and DVR. You've been running the Padres. I've been running the Astros. We did a check-in on Thursday's show with Michael Beller on his Cubs. So I figured, you know, it's your turn (laughs) to check in on your Padres. And you've got one streaky team there. Uh, you've lost five of your last seven, but before that you won 21 out of 27. Then you had kind of a losing streak before that. So I think that's probably just random, but I think there are a few players that are pretty interesting in the sim. Uh, for one, um, you've got, uh, Manny Machado and, and Fernando Tatis who have been, uh, you know, really, uh, important in, in terms of your offense, but Trent Grisham is really kind of right up there with them. And I'm wondering, you know, basically using this as an excuse or a jumping off point, what would you expect from Trent Grisham in a 2020 season? It's a good question. I mean, I, I didn't really going into 2019. I didn't see anything quite like that coming. I'm not sure if anybody, even in the Brewers front office, necessarily saw that much of a breakout coming. The thing I've always liked about him is that he's had good control of the strike zone. Like. Even before he started finding power in the minor leagues, Trent Grisham drew a lot of walks and he didn't, didn't strike out a ton going back to rookie ball. You could see year-over-year improvement as he moved up each level. Um, you know, The AA numbers in 2018 were actually pretty good when you take a look at how young he was, a 21-year-old playing at that level for the first time. So I think if you were to say you know, low-ish, like 240, 250 average, 340 OBP and maybe like a 450, 460 slug. I think that's a pretty good slash line given that he's a left-handed hitter playing in a pretty difficult place for a left-handed hitter to hit home runs. But he's got a few skills to fall back on. We saw him run uh, quite a bit in the minor leagues even though he only attempted one stolen base in 51 games with the Brewers last season. So it's kind of a question as to whether or not he's going to be active on the base paths. But uh, I think because he gets on base, and that's a priority in the Padres organization right now, could have a prominent spot in the lineup. The power is at least average grade power, and the plate skills have always been good. So I think he's a solid like fringe 
top 200 overall sort of player with obviously room to be better than that. Yeah, well, uh, the Sims certainly seems to think he can be even better than that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. And then, you know, you've really needed that because uh, Yasiel Puig and Tommy Pham have, have not really produced for you. Both, in fact, are below replacement level, which is one of the cool things that uh, Out of the Park lets you know, gives you their war. Uh, and meanwhile, Josh Naylor is just tearing it up in simulated AAA. So have you given any thought to uh, bringing him up? And, and by the way, I'm just going to say as an aside that in this sim and in another out-of-the-park sim that I'm doing of the 2020 season, I'm finding that players that do really well in the minors, even if they're not players that were necessarily on my radar, if the sim likes them in the minors, they seem to do pretty well when you promote them. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I may have to make some tough decisions like that. I hadn't thought about pushing Naylor into the equation. I'm a little frustrated because before I decided to sign Yasiel Puig, when we started this season, Naylor was going to be on the big side of a platoon in the outfield. And I had some hesitation. I thought maybe I liked him more than the Sim did. So I was trying not to round up and expect too much. So I went out, spent the money, and I kind of regret it because it looks to me like Naylor would have been just fine in Puig being just kind of okay has been pretty frustrating. Fam being below replacement level is weird. Like, I didn't see that coming at all. The only way I could see that really playing out is if the elbow injury that slowed him down late last season and early on this spring, if that's really a problem for him throughout 2020, I could see that dragging down his production. But if he's healthy, I think his production floor is actually pretty steady at this point. Yeah, now that surprised me too. And you know what we do with these check-ins with the sim is look at how these players are performing, and then a lot of times we talk about it in terms of is that something that actually could be replicated in real baseball? And I'd have a hard time uh, making that argument for Tommy Pham being as bad as he's been in the sim. And that's even in light of the fact that during the off season I wrote a piece about uh, Tommy Pham where I had some questions about his uh, his batting average floor maybe being a little lower than we think. But um, yeah, uh, the, the sim is really kind of outdone even my my you know worst expectations. Uh, but yeah, it does you know I think raise some questions about Grisham and and about Naylor. And Naylor was actually recently mentioned in a piece on the Athletic by Dennis Lynn. And uh, Dennis made the, the comment in the piece that Naylor is probably the most obvious DH candidate for the Padres, and he'll probably split that time with with somebody else. But that boost in in playing time in in real baseball, if that happens, I I think that uh, you know that maybe elevates him on the kind of the outskirts of of twelve team relevancy. It really could, I think they would probably find a way to not play him against lefties, especially with expanded rosters. But big side platoon guy with a good hit tool, developing power, and an improving lineup, that's quite a bit to like. I mean, that's sort of... If he gets to all of the power, depending on where he hits in the order, what's the ceiling? Maybe Jock Peterson sort of production? I think you're getting a better batting average than what you get from Peterson. So I, I think not much even really better. Comp. Yeah, I, I think it's really... It's really hard to get a sense for how much power Josh Naylor has because he has been young for the level everywhere he's played. And last year, of course, got to more power than ever with the more lively baseball. So how much of that was physical growth and being 22 years old and how much of that was uh, the baseball being different? 
Well, that's a that's a really good point, and I did a little digging into this after reading uh, Dennis Lynn's piece. And once he started playing more regularly in the second half, he produced more. He hit for more power. His average exit velocity on flies and liners was ninety four point four miles an hour, which is which is pretty good. I mean, it's it's not elite by any means, but it's you know it's maybe a, a little bit on the the good side of average. Uh, you know, for somebody getting his first regular exposure uh, to the major leagues. So uh, I made a comp. Uh, I tweeted about this and I, I comped him to Avisail Garcia. So hmm. I think maybe that's, I think that's a fairly conservative estimate for what his ceiling could be. Yeah, but he's definitely a guy that gets a big boost if the universal DH becomes a thing. And I think he's a little bit forgotten about because he's no longer eligible for top prospect lists. And he was always a bit devalued on those lists because he never really had a, an above average defensive position. He was always like a first baseman who was going to have to hit a ton in order to become a regular. And he's kind of a fringy outfielder. So definitely a guy who benefits from that adjustment if they do move forward with that. Yeah, well, of course, we'll be talking a lot more about this once we get more details on whatever uh, the owners and the uh, the uh, Players Association works out. And uh, as of this discussion, we don't really have any more details on that, uh, but I'm sure that that's going to be to come. Uh, in the meantime, a really, really cool piece in The Athletic from Tim Britton on what uh, maybe what sort of things we could see in an 82-game season, since that seems to be one uh, aspect of um, a proposed season that we're likely to see. And so Tim's piece is, what are the weirdest things that would have happened in an 82-game season, looking at some past seasons? And DVR, one that stood out to me was that the Nationals would have won the NL East in their first season after moving from Montreal. And I saw the Nationals, and I think what was their first game as the Washington Nationals against the Marlins, it was either their first game ever or their first road game. I can't remember which. I just remember that uh, Emilio Bonifacio hit a triple. Um, <laughs> but I didn't remember the Nationals being that good that year. Yeah, I don't remember them being that good either. Yeah, so read it. Other surprising stuff in there. Really cool piece from Tim Britton. And uh, that's going to be all for this episode and this week of Fantasy Baseball in 15. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off of your subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball in 15 or check it out by way of a 90-day free trial. And of course, everything that's in The Athletic is in your athletic subscription. So do check that out. If you're listening to this podcast on a platform that allows you to leave a rating and a review, we would greatly appreciate it if you take the time to do that. For Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melkier, and we'll be right back here on Monday. <laughs>